Section 3 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19, Don Pacifico, Part 1. The name of Don Pacifico was as familiar to the world some quarter of a century ago as that of Monsieur Jaeger was about the time of the French invasion of Mexico. Don Pacifico became famous for a season as the man whose quarrel had nearly brought on a European war, caused a temporary disturbance of good relations between England and France, split up political parties in England in a manner hardly ever known before, and established the reputation of Lord Palmerston as one of the greatest parliamentary debaters of his time. Among the memorable speeches delivered in the English House of Commons, that of Lord Palmerston on the Don Pacifico debate must always take a place. It was not because the subject of the debate was a great one, or because there were any grand principles involved. The question originally in dispute was unutterably trivial and paltry. There was no particular principle involved. It was altogether what is called in commercial litigation a question of account, a controversy about the amount and time of payment of a doubtful claim. Nor was the speech delivered by Lord Palmerston one of the grand historical displays of oratory that even when the sound of them is lost send their echoes to roll from soul to soul. It was not like one of Burke's great speeches or one of Chatham's. It was not one calculated to provoke keen literary controversy, like Sheridan's celebrated Begum speech, which all contemporaries held to be unrivaled, but which a later generation assumes to have been rather flashy rhetoric. There are no passages of splendid eloquence in Palmerston's Pacifico speech. Its great merit was its wonderful power as a contribution to parliamentary argument, as a masterful appeal to the feelings, the prejudices, and the passions of the House of Commons, as a complete parliamentary victory over a combination of the most influential, eloquent, and heterogeneous opponents. Don Pacifico was a Jew, a Portuguese by extraction, but a native of Gibraltar and a British subject. His house in Athens was attacked and plundered in the open day on April 4, 1847, by an Athenian mob, who was headed, it was affirmed, by two sons of the Greek minister of war. The attack came about in this way. It had been customary in Greek towns to celebrate Easter by burning an effigy of Judas Iscariot. In 1847, the police of Athens were ordered to prevent this performance, and the mob, disappointed of their favorite amusement, ascribed the new orders to the influence of the Jews. Don Pacifico's house happened to stand near the spot where the Judas was annually burnt. Don Pacifico was known to be a Jew, and the anger of the mob was wrecked upon him accordingly. There could be no doubt that the attack was lawless, and that the Greek authorities took no trouble to protect Pacifico against it. Don Pacifico made a claim against the Greek government for compensation. He estimated his losses direct and indirect, at nearly £32,000 sterling. Another claim was made at the same time by another British subject, a man of a very different stamp from Don Pacifico. This was Mr. Finley, the historian of Greece. 
Mr. Findlay had gone out to Greece in the enthusiastic days of Byron and Cochrane and Church and Hastings, and he settled in Athens when the independence of Greece had been established. Some of his land had been taken for the purpose of rounding off the new palace gardens of King Otto, and Mr. Finley had declined to accept the terms offered by the Greek government, to which other landowners in the same position as himself had assented. Some stress was laid by Lord Palmerston's antagonists in the course of the debate on the fact that Mr. Finley thus stood out apart from other landowners in Athens. Mr. Finley, however, had a perfect right to stand out for any price he thought fit. He was in the same position as a Greek resident of London or Manchester whose land is taken for the purpose of a railroad or other public improvement, and who declines to accept the amount of compensation tendered for it in the first instance. The peculiarity of the case was that Mr. Finley was not left, as the supposed Greek gentleman assuredly would be, to make good his claims for himself in the courts of law. Neither Don Pacifico nor Mr. Finley had appealed to the law courts at all. But about this time our Foreign Office had had several little complaints against the Greek authorities. We had taken so considerable a part in setting up Greece that our ministers not unnaturally thought Greece ought to show her gratitude by attending a little more closely to our advice. On the other hand, Lord Palmerston had made up his mind that there was constant intrigue going on against our interests among the foreign diplomatists in Athens. He was convinced that France was perpetually plotting against us there, and that Russia was watching an opportunity to supersede once for all our influence by completely establishing hers. Don Pacifico's sheets, counterpanes, and gold watch had the advantage of being made the subject of a trial of strength between England on the one side and France and Russia on the other. There had been other complaints as well. Ionian subjects of Her Majesty had sent in remonstrances against lawless or high-handed proceedings, and a midshipman of Her Majesty's ship Phantom, landing from a boat at night on the shore of Patras, had been arrested by mistake. None of these questions would seem at first sight to wear a very grave international character. All they needed for settlement, it might be thought, was a little open discussion and the exercise of some good sense and moderation on both sides. It cannot be doubted that the Greek authorities were lax and careless, and that acts had been done which they could not justify. It is only fair to say that they do not appear to have tried to justify some of them, but they were of opinion that certain of the claims were absurdly exaggerated, and in this belief they proved to be well sustained. The Greeks were very poor and also very dilatory, and they gave Lord Palmerston a reasonable excuse for a little impatience. Unluckily, Lord Palmerston became possessed with the idea that the French minister in Greece was secretly setting the Greek government on to resist our claims. For the Foreign Office had made the claims ours. They had lumped up the outrages on Ionian seamen, the mistaken arrest of the midshipmen, who had been released with apologies the moment his nationality and position were discovered, Mr. Finley's land and Don Pacifico's household furniture in one claim, converted it into a national demand, and insisted that Greece must pay up within a given time or take the consequences. Greece hesitated, and accordingly the British fleet was ordered to the Piraeus. 
It made its appearance very promptly there and seized all the Greek vessels belonging to the government and to private merchants that were found within the waters. The Greek government appealed to France and Russia as powers joined with us in the treaty to protect the independence of Greece. France and Russia were both disposed to make bitter complaint of not having been consulted in the first instance by the British government. Nor was their feeling greatly softened by Lord Palmerston's peremptory reply that it was all a question between England and Greece, with which no other power had any business to interfere. The Russian government wrote an angry and indeed an offensive remonstrance. The Russian foreign minister spoke of the very painful impression produced upon the mind of the emperor by the unexpected acts of violence which the British authorities had just directed against Greece and asked if Great Britain, abusing the advantages which are afforded to her by her immense maritime superiority, intended to disengage herself from all obligation and to authorize all great powers on every fitting opportunity to recognize toward the weak no other rule but their own will, no other right but their own physical strength. The French government, perhaps under the pressure of difficulties and uncertain affairs at home, in their unsettled state showed a better temper, and intervened only in the interests of peace and good understanding. Something like a friendly arbitration was accepted from the French, and the French government sent a special representative to Athens to try to come to terms with our minister there. The difficulties appeared likely to be adjusted. All the claims except those of Don Pacifico were matter of easy settlement, and at first the French commissioner seemed even willing to accept Don Pacifico's stupendous valuation of his household goods. But Pacifico had introduced other demands of a more shadowy character. He said that he had certain claims on the Portuguese government, and that the papers on which these claims rested for support were destroyed in the sacking of his house, and therefore he felt entitled to ask for £26,618 as compensation on that account also. The French commissioner was a little staggered at this demand, and declined to accede to it without further consideration, and as our minister, Mr. Wise, did not believe he had any authority to abate any of the now national demand, the negotiation was for the time broken off. In the meantime, however, negotiations had still been going on between the English and the French governments in London, and these had resulted in a convention disposing of all the disputed claims. By the terms of this agreement, a sum of £8,500 was to be paid by the Greek government to be divided among the various claimants, and Greece was also to pay whatever sum might be found to be fairly due on account of Don Pacifico's Portuguese claims after these had been investigated by arbitrators. This would seem a very satisfactory and honourable arrangement, but some demon of mischief appeared to have this unlucky affair in charge from the first. The two negotiations going on in London and Athens simultaneously got in each other's way. Instructions as to what had been agreed to in London were not forwarded to Athens quickly enough by the English government, and when the French government sent out to their commissioner the news of the convention, he found that Mr. Wise knew nothing about the matter and had no authority which, as he conceived, would have warranted him in departing from the course of action he was following out. Mr. Wise, therefore, proceeded with his measures of coercion, and at length the Greek government gave way. 
the convention having however been made in the meantime in london there then arose a question as to whether that convention or the terms extorted at athens should be the basis of arrangement over this trumpery dispute which a few words of frank good sense and good temper on both sides would have easily settled a new quarrel seemed at one time likely to break out between england and france the french government actually withdrew their ambassador m drouin de Luis, from london and there was for a short time a general alarm over europe but the question in dispute was really too small and insignificant for any two rational governments to make it a cause of serious quarrel and after a while our government gave way and agreed to an arrangement which was in the main all that france desired when after a long lapse of time the arbitrators came to settle the claims of don pacifico it was found that he was entitled to about one-thirtieth of the sum he had originally demanded he had assessed all his claims on the same liberal and fanciful scale as that which he adopted in estimating the value of his household property don pacifico it seems charged in his bill one hundred and fifty pounds sterling for a bedstead thirty pounds for the sheets of the bed twenty-five pounds for two coverlets and ten pounds for a pillowcase cleopatra might have been contented with bed furniture so luxurious as don pacifico represented himself to have in his common use the jewellery of his wife and daughters he estimated at two thousand pounds he gave no vouchers for any of these claims saying that all his papers had been destroyed by the mob it seemed too that he had always lived in a humble sort of way and was never supposed by his neighbours to possess such splendour of ornament and household goods while the controversy between the english and french governments was yet unfinished a parliamentary controversy between the former government and the opposition in the house of lords was to begin lord stanley proposed a resolution which was practically a vote of censure on the government the resolution in fact expressed the regret of the house to find that various claims against the greek government doubtful in point of justice or exaggerated in amount have been enforced by coercive measures directed against the commerce and people of greece and calculated to endanger the continuance of our friendly relations with foreign powers the resolution was carried after a debate of great spirit and energy by a majority of thirty-seven lord palmerston was not dismayed a ministry is seldom greatly troubled by an adverse vote in the house of lords the foreign secretary writing about the result of the division the following day merely said we were beaten last night in the lords by a larger majority than we had up to the last moment expected but when we took office we knew that our opponents had a larger pack in the lords than we had and that whenever the two packs were to be fully dealt out theirs would show a larger number than ours still it was necessary that something should be done in the commons to counterbalance the stroke of the lords and accordingly mr roebuck acting as an independent member although on this occasion in harmony with the government gave notice of a resolution which boldly affirmed that the principles on which the foreign policy of the government had been regulated were such as were calculated to maintain the honour and dignity of this country and in times of unexampled difficulty to preserve peace between england and the various nations of the world on june twenty fourth eighteen fifty a night memorable in parliamentary annals as the opening night of the debate which established lord palmerston's position as a great leader of party 
Mr. Roebuck brought forward his resolution. A reader unaccustomed to parliamentary tactics may fail to observe the peculiar shrewdness of the resolution. It was framed, at least it reads as if it had been framed, to accomplish one purpose while professing to serve another. It was intended, of course, as a reply to the censure of the House of Lords. It was to proclaim to the world that the representative chamber had reversed the decision of the House of Peers and acquitted the ministry. But what did Mr. Roebuck's resolution actually do? Did it affirm that the government had acted rightly with regard to Greece? The dealings with Greece were expressly censured by the House of Lords, but Mr. Roebuck proposed to affirm that the general policy of the ministry deserved the approval of the House of Commons. It was well known that there were many men of liberal opinions in the House of Commons who did not approve of the course pursued with regard to Greece, but who would yet have been very sorry to give a vote which might contribute to the overthrow of a liberal government. The resolution was so framed as to offer to all such an opportunity of supporting the government and yet satisfying their consciences. For it might be thus put to them, You think the government were too harsh with Greece. Perhaps you are right. But this resolution does not say that they were quite free of blame in their way of dealing with Greece. It only says that their policy on the whole has been sound and successful, and of course you must admit that. They may have made a little mistake with regard to Greece, but admitting that, do you not still think that on the whole they have done very well, and much better than any Tory ministry would be likely to do? This is all that Roebuck's resolution asks you to affirm, and you really cannot vote against it. End of section 3